Ohio Habla es un podcast que nace del proyecto Narrativas Orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio. Exploramos la experiencia latina con entrevistas en español, inglés y spanglish. Welcome to Ohio Habla. I'm Elena Fowles, and in the studio today we have Dr. Anne-Marie Nunez, Associate Professor of Educational Studies at The Ohio State University. Much of Dr. Nunez's research has addressed college access and success of Hispanic, first-generation, migrant, and English learner students. She is lead author of the book, Latinos in Higher Education and Hispanic-Serving Institutions, Creating Conditions for Success, published in 2013. In 2015, she co-edited the book, Hispanic Serving Institutions Advancing Research and Transformative Practice with Silvia Hurtado and Emily Calderon Galdeano, which is an International Latino Book Award winner and the first book to focus on Hispanic serving institutions as organizations and their role in the American higher education system. Anne-Marie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. You have written extensively about underrepresented groups. Do you embody any of these identities? Uh, tell me about your background. So I am a second-generation immigrant from a mixed-heritage Latina background. My father came here from Colombia. Mm -hmm. um, English is his second language. Mm -hmm. So um, when I think about English learners, I'm thinking about him. When I'm thinking about these different issues of crossing cultures and college access and moving from K through 12 into higher education, I think it's that cross-cultural background that really informs my work. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, what have you found are the best practices for promoting college access and completion? So... I have written a book about that for Latino <laughs> students, but so I wanted to think about what I would say um, more concisely. I mean, what I think the most important thing is that best practices need to integrate several dimensions mm -hmm. and identities. Um, they need to be holistic. Um, so basically, they need to include and weave together academic, financial, mm -hmm. cultural, and social support. And uh, within the context of a campus culture, there needs to be a campus culture where students feel welcome mm -hmm. and all, students from all backgrounds can feel a sense of belonging. And the personnel at that university are proactive about affirming different cultural backgrounds and framing those different cultural backgrounds, like linguistic skills, mm -hmm. as assets. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, Tell me about your findings related to the experiences and trajectories of specifically Latino students, first generation, migrant students in, in the university system. So first of all, with their trajectories, these groups of students are less likely to attend college in the first place than others. So since 1970, the share of high school graduates going into college has increased a lot, but They st these groups still lag behind other groups in terms of entering uh, college. They're also more likely to attend community colleges um, rather than four-year institutions. And this is related to their desire to limit financial struggles, to mm -hmm. feel more financially secure, um, possibly to work, to be able to live at home, to be able to commute and limit college costs, 
to stay close to home also perhaps in order to care for their families. Um, and, and sometimes they feel like community colleges and certain less selective institutions are more comfortable for them mm-hmm. and will offer them a greater sense of belonging. And if they do get to college, these students from these groups tend to enroll in less selective and less well-resourced colleges. So those mm-hmm. colleges have fewer resources for faculty and staff to build practices mm-hmm. to serve these students. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if, if they go to a more resourced college, those those colleges are tend to be, in the in the case of Latinos, in the case of first generation students, they, they tend to be predominantly white and they tend to be predominantly high income. So those students may not feel very welcome in predominantly white institutions that are well resourced, even though it seems like those institutions are well resourced. Mm-hmm. So for example, we've seen I mean, first-generation students have started an Ivy League group only within the past two or three years to help themselves mm-hmm. feel more of a sense of belonging. So they gather across institutions, to, and then now they're trying to advocate for certain mm-hmm. policies at universities that are more inclusive of low-income people. So that's something also that's really important to keep in mind. But all of that said, if... These students are given appropriate academic, cultural, financial, and social support, and they're in environments that affirm their assets, Mm -hmm. they're more likely to succeed, and they can succeed just like any other population. What you've mentioned, though, um, the preference uh, or the likelihood that this group um, starts at a community college uh, because of... um, you know, their, their sort of cultural backgrounds or financial reasons. It doesn't sound like a bad choice, right? Because there, I'm, I'm thinking about less debt. I'm thinking about um, staying connected, uh, connected with their community and their family. Um, so what's the, mm, why not? Why not start there and, and then move on? Why the push for maybe start at a institution that's either an Ivy League or a more resource institution? That is such a great question. So in some of the work that I do, we're trying to encourage students from these backgrounds to have more options. So we want them, it's fine to go to these institutions, but we want students to have a choice so that they know what options that they have. So there's a lot of evidence that suggests that migrant students and Latinx students are not encouraged to go to colleges that they're academically qualified for, Mm -hmm. which means that they don't have those options because they're Mm -hmm. not being made aware Mm -hmm. of those options. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, counselor discouragement in high school can lead restrict those options. But that said, if those students are choosing to go to institutions that are more close to home, a lot of times they find good sources of support in their families, mm-hmm. and that's really important to them. And so I think that that's really an important, those are really important options going to community colleges and in some cases Hispanic serving institutions mm-hmm. that are closer to home. Because mm-hmm. there's some research suggesting that students who are admitted to, you know, what the kinds of universities that the United States thinks of as the most elite universities, so maybe Ivy Leagues um, or 
more well-resourced public institutions that they still choose, even if they're admitted to those institutions, they still choose to go to Hispanic-serving mm-hmm. institutions close to home because they find those environments far more welcoming mm-hmm. and they see that they're going to get the support that they need. So stepping back, it's that community colleges Students are less likely to graduate with a bachelor's degree Mm -hmm. if they start out at a community college. They might stop there. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily the student's fault, but there are a lot of structural things that make transfer really difficult. And if they attend less selective four-year institutions, there may not be as many resources, Mm -hmm. academic, financial, the kinds I've been talking about, to support them in their journey. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. I started in uh, community college, so I'm from community college to PhD story, right? Uh, But I certainly know that that's not the case for everybody, and that's not everybody's story. Um, I I acknowledge that. Uh, What are some of the, and you mentioned some already, but what are some of the unique challenges Latino um, students face in higher ed besides maybe financial restraints? Is there other things that are um, keeping our students from uh, either attending college or graduating? So one of the things that some of my colleagues and I have been really working on in the policy world is to expand the question you asked to consider what are the rela- what is the relationship between other structures in the United States and educational opportunities. So there's a lot of segregation in the United States right now, and Latinos are more likely than other groups. Um, Latinos and African Americans tend to live in highly segregated communities where students attend high schools that are far less well-resourced and have far fewer college preparatory offerings. Mm -hmm. So even at an earlier age, they're less likely to have access to the academic preparation they need, not because they're not capable, Mm -hmm. but because they might be in areas that economically and schools that don't offer that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's one that's really key. I think, um, yeah, we have talked a little bit about finances, but I think it's also worth mentioning that Latinos are more likely than other groups to work Mm -hmm. while in college. And so that can take them away from their studies unless There are some really great work opportunities on campus, and Mm -hmm. if Latinos can get access to those, that's wonderful. But sometimes it also, those kinds of opportunities can take them away from focusing on their studies, especially if they're off campus. Mm -hmm. So that's another one. And more broadly, they're entering, higher education was created in the United States first to serve white men from Mm -hmm. privileged backgrounds. And so there's still this culture, and it varies from institution to institution, but particularly the more well-resourced and what people call elite institutions, they were created for people from a different culture. Mm -hmm. And those institutions have not transformed their culture to be responsive to the needs of Latinos and other students from other backgrounds that are coming in. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, you typically hear, right, um, that um, traditional or non-traditional students, but that that 
that definition is even expanding even more. What is traditional? What is a traditional student? I want to say that at least uh, half of my students currently work and go to school, right? When we, the idea of a traditional student used to be just studying, right? You just went to to college and didn't worry about having a part-time job. Or if you worked, you worked maybe five hours a week or something like that. But now we have... Um, much more commuter students, much more um, students that are carrying, you know, part-time to full-time load of work and school. Uh, so that definition is certainly expanding uh, whether you are or not a member of an underserved group. Um we know that first-generation students, regardless of any of the other boxes they check, can potentially face many challenges. How can institutions in the Midwest, like the Ohio State University, reach this population? So I know I keep coming back to it, mm-hmm. but providing academic supports when students get here, so um, whether that be um, you know, tutoring or peer tutoring or mm-hmm. supplemental instruction, bridge programs to help students level their skills if they've come from high schools where they just simply haven't been able to take those classes mm-hmm. would be really helpful. I think financial um, arrangements, um, including grants, really strategically organized grants and loans packages if loans are necessary to support them through that. Um, and social support. And mm-hmm. so really making sure that faculty and staff are welcoming to all students and that they're reaching out to different students and affirming their backgrounds. I think all of those are really important in terms of work reaching out to this particular population. And then, like I was suggesting before, integrating all of these dimensions into a broader campus climate that serves all students and affirms all students would help. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, part of your research deals with uh, creating inclusive organizational environments beyond undergraduate education. Can you tell us how you're doing this through experiential learning? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I'm working on right now is building more inclusive cultures in geosciences through two kinds of experiential learning. One is outdoor field work. So when people take field trips outside and they're, you know, learning skills about identifying rocks. And the other one is employer linked. So the one related to field based um, experiences, I'm actually working with geoscientists to involve faculty and administrators to transform their organizations so that the field experiences that they construct are more responsive to the needs of students um, gender-wise, people from different class backgrounds, because field work can be really expensive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Buying that gear, buying those hiking boots, thinking about strategic ways to welcome students into those field experiences. Um, Histories of race and ethnicity, including the colonization of the U.S. Uh, Native American students can be very alienated in when they go on these field camps because their histories are not being acknowledged. Mm -hmm. So that's one way is to, to really understand better the needs of those students and bring those, that information 
to faculty and administrators to be able to apply and create their own models of inclusive field work. So that's one. And then the other one has to do with um, in linking the classroom with employ internships in industry. Mm-hmm. So internships in different geosciences industries. So um, I'm working on a program at another school where the students, they have one rotation. It's like a medical school rotation. Mm-hmm. So they'll take a course in the academic research, but then they'll also be taking these workshops about how to write a CV and mm-hmm. workshops about how to do interviews. And then in the subsequent two semesters, they have internships in different industries. And so that this helps them learn more about the broader world of work and employment options in geosciences and helps them be aware of the array of options that they have and hopefully to choose what they really want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask, I'm curious about this. So a lot of the work that you're doing um, hopefully will um, lead to change, right, um, within the organization. So how, what um, are some things that would create this it seems like to me that there has to be accountability, right? So that those changes are implemented. Um, have you looked at that, or is there any ways that um, that organizations like you know the university or industry are conscious of this and are made accountable um, for these changes? So there are a lot of scholars who are using data to track student progress, and that that really it really begins, the, one of the first steps is knowing how your students are doing mm-hmm. and knowing how your faculty are doing. What is your student composition if we're talking about race and ethnicity? And I know actually OSU looks at the socioeconomic composition of its departments. Mm-hmm. So what is the composition? And then if we track graduation rates, comparing the graduation rates of the different groups to see if there's parity across groups. So that's... Um, some work that Estela Ben-Simon and Alicia Dowd at the University of Southern California have started called an equity scorecard. Mm. So first to look at equity in terms of the data outcomes. And then once one has that data, to be able to develop interventions based on that uh, particular data. So for example, institutions looking at um, their year-to-year persistence. Maybe in the sciences, they'll find that most students leave after the first year. Well, then that institution might start thinking about, is there are, are there issues with courses that are gatekeeping, mm-hmm. keeping students from progressing further? Do we need to redesign or strengthen aspects of our curriculum to help those students get to the next level. Mm -hmm. So I think that those are some really important approaches. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, Is there anything else that you would like uh, our audience to know about your work? I know that 
we just uh, briefly before we started recording the podcast, you mentioned a fellowship, and uh, so tell me what what else are you are you leading in the next year or so? Well, one of the things I wanted to use this podcast as an opportunity <laughs> was to say that there's going to be a Latino Education Summit at Ohio State University on November 9th. And I know you and I have yes. heard about this mm-hmm. and been involved in planning it. So mm-hmm. we'll be Mark- participating. <laughs> <laughs> so don't say we didn't give you advance warning. <laughs> Mark your calendars. This is really important mm-hmm. to raise the vil- visibility of Latinos in Ohio and figure out all that we've been talking about, how can institutions here be more responsive to the growing Latino population? Starting from K through 12, right? Not just the university. Exactly, mm-hmm. right, because all those levels are necessary. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. And then you've heard me so far talking about elite institutions and less selective institutions and sort of this system of higher education that we have, which is wonderful because it's the biggest in the world. It's the most diverse um, system of higher education in the world. And One of the things, though, that happens is, as I was talking about before, there's a stratification of opportunities for students who attend uh, community colleges or less well-resourced institutions versus more well-resourced institutions. Um, That all said, minority-serving institutions, which include Hispanic-serving institutions, historically black colleges and universities, tribal colleges and universities, these institutions are really providing an important service to the United States. They're providing access to higher education for many students who otherwise wouldn't go into higher education Mm -hmm. at all. And there's a lot of evidence suggesting that students at these institutions from Hispanic, you know, Black or Native American backgrounds, that they feel a lot more comfortable at these institutions. Mm -hmm. And they may even be able to pursue different definitions of success, Mm -hmm. right, that might be related to their communities, um, you know, serving their communities and families, not just focusing very, very narrowly on graduation rates. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So as part of that, I'm on a National Academy of Sciences committee right now with other scientists from around the country um, and a couple other education researchers. And we're writing about a a report that's going to be released nationally about how minority-serving institutions contribute to science, technology, engineering, and math fields. As part of that, we're also going to include the kinds of practices that take place in these institutions that are culturally responsive to Mm -hmm. these students' needs. And so we hoped and plan to circulate it nationally. We might even take it on a tour Mm -hmm. because we feel that it's very, and the evidence shows that it's really important to raise the visibility of these institutions and their contributions and to devote more resources to those institutions to be more responsive to the demographically transforming population of this country. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, well, thank you for your uh, for the work that you do, Dr. Nunez. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you here in the studio. A todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. Thank you.